Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike. Just looking after the introduction to this week's episode with Melissa Doyle. Melissa's new podcast with Audible, Age Against the Machine, is out now. And Age Against the Machine, which uh, Mel talks about uh, quite thoroughly in this podcast episode, is all about uh, the perception of ageing in different cultures around the world, particularly in relation to women. In Age Against the Machine, there are interviews with lots of inspiring women around the world to discuss everything from menopause to sex to job opportunities and political representation. And they also talk a lot about why getting older in Australia is seen as a real issue here. Um, And looking at all those cultural differences around ageing, Melissa also talks to Will about her career in journalism and how she got to the point she is at now talking about these issues and what aging means for Australian women. This is a really great chat and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed putting it together and listening to it. Uh, Will is currently doing his Willegal show in Wagga Wagga. The show uh, is based on Wagga Wagga, so I believe in a way Will is kind of taking the show home. That is at the Civic Theatre in Wagga Wagga on the 12th and 13th of June. So get your tickets to that. It is a great show. We also have three other podcasts on the TOEFOP network, TOEFOP, FOFOP, and Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL-adjacent podcast. So please go and check out those other shows to help support us. And if you want to support us more, you can go to Patreon dot com slash philosophy and for as little as a dollar a month you can get access to these episodes a day earlier and without ads if we can reach a consistent five thousand dollars a month on the patreon then we will release two episodes of philosophy every week uh so every dollar counts thank you so much to everyone who's supported us for all this time uh but now without further ado let's take a listen to this episode of philosophy with melissa doyle enjoy Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Hi, I'm Melissa Doyle. Uh, what else would you like to know? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's what we do explore over the next you know, <laughs> period of time, Melissa Doyle. But I will say this, um, I'm always very interested in what people do say next. So what if you're introducing yourself to somebody and you say, I'm Melissa Doyle, what normally comes after that? Oh, um, I'd probably say what I do. I'm a journo. I'm a mum. And then I'd probably turn it on them because I'm not very good on this side of the interview. So I'd probably start asking them questions to uh, to take it off me, to be really honest. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a, I love, I love that as a place to start. What is it about answering the questions that feels uncomfortable, but asking the questions feels natural? I don't know whether it's because the spotlight is on me in that situation or whether it's because being a journalist, my job is to ask questions. And, and, you know, I think it's always been really important when I've done stories that they're never about me. They're about the person that I'm talking to. So you are just naturally trained to kind of deflect it back and be a bit of a fence sitter, always be open-minded, always listen to what people are saying, um, and keep your opinions quiet and let them do the talking. So I always say to my kids, if you're in a social situation and you're feeling a bit nervous, so you're not quite sure what to do, just ask people about themselves. They're always happy to talk. 
<laughs> What's the question that you are most likely to ask somebody? You're at a party, you've just met somebody, you're about to make some, you know, chat with this person you haven't met before. What are you most interested in finding out about them? Oh, well, I wouldn't go the deep dive straight away. Oh, maybe I probably would. Um, it depends if I knew anything about them or not. I'd probably want to try to get a few little details about them so that then I could pick up on a on a thread and follow it along and find out. Yeah, I'm probably like you though. I love, it's all about storytelling, isn't it? So I'm just always intrigued who people are and what makes them tick and why they do what they do, why they enjoy what they do. It's fascinating. Okay, so we'll keep that in mind then, <laughs> Melissa, as we uh, you know spend some time together over the next hour because I'm going to be asking those same things of you <laughs> and in the way that you expect those answers of other people, <laughs> if you could just provide them for me today, that would be very handy for what we're trying to do here. So. It's like a grilling. <laughs> Uh, what, what is it that you are most looking to find out from another person? Because I, I find it very interesting that we always do tend to lead with our job, mm -hmm. what we do. Like you said, you know, you, you, you lead with what you contribute to the world in some ways, I think, is when we say, what do we do? You said, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a mother, these are the things that I do. Why do you think that we define ourselves so much through what it is we do? I... Probably back to the beginning of that question where you asked what I want to find out. I'm, I'm fascinated by what motivates people, what makes them want to do what it is that they do. So whether that be a job, whether that be something they do in their spare time, but what is it that drives people to do so many different things? And I'm so glad we all do because we can't all do the same thing. But, um, you know, some people are motivated by fame. Some people might be motivated by wealth. Some people are motivated to do good. Some people are motivated because it's just something that rocks their world and they can't see themselves doing anything else, whether they're an artist or a singer or a comedian or a dancer, or, you know, it's just in you and it has to come out somehow. And I think if you can make that how you earn your living, then that's a bonus. Um, obviously some people work in a job that's probably not really floating their boat and it's paying the bills and they're doing it to keep themselves, you know, keep the money coming in so that they can go fishing every weekend or whatever it might be. But I think what motivates us every day to get up and out of bed and what our purpose is, is of most interest. So this gets to the heart of what this show is really about, which is, you know, what is life's philosophy? What is life's purpose? Do you have a particular life philosophy or life motto that you tend to live by? My motto is control the controllable. So for me, that's been really great. My husband taught me that when we first met. So it applies in every situation from sitting in peak hour traffic, <laughs> where I tend to get a tad frustrated, to every situation from work to families to just life every day, you know, those things that you can't control, then just got to let them go. And the things that you can then do something about them. Okay, so this is interesting. How do you tell the difference between the two? Oh, maybe some days I can a little easier than others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Traffic's a good one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think anything that you have no um, input into the outcome. I think it's a little bit like um, you can set yourself up for things. You can give yourself the best opportunities. You can have education, you can um, make sure you've, you've you know, ticked all the boxes that you might require in order to achieve something or get somewhere or do something. But there does come a point where 
the universe just kicks in and, and takes over. So I think finding out what you can let go of, you know, it's a little bit like, I guess, um, I look at it when, you know, my kids are little, when they're, you just got to pick your battles, don't you? Some things are just really worth digging your heels in on and other things you've just got to let go. So maybe that's the bigger picture. So when you say can control the controllables and let go of the other things, like they're two very different states of mind and often people have a hard time you know they're too much one or the other of those things that you don't care about any deadlines you don't care about any commitments that you're happy to let everything go and not stand up for things that are important or the other people who try to control everything in their life and get frustrated when you can't control those things before your husband uh, you know has a conversation with you about control the controllables which of those camps would you describe yourself as being more in mm, i Gee, do I have to be in one or the other? I think it depends no, on the given day. Don't. Yeah, I'm not no, a control but I, freak. I'm more interested in what yeah. it was that you perhaps mm-hmm. identified more with. Probably a little bit more of a go with the flow mm-hmm. when I was younger, and probably to an extent, a lot of things now. I, I think you can get yourself tied up in knots of trying to change something or do something that you actually need to let go of. Um, I'm probably not one of those people that just sits and dwells on things. I don't tend to take a lot of things on when I know that there's really no point. So I think I'm fairly good at whether it's letting go, whether it's boxing it up and putting it on a shelf, I don't quite know. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm... God, I, feel I feel from that answer that you know a little bit about occasionally it might be boxing it up and putting it on a shelf. I mean, you know, sometimes you just think, oh, I can't, I haven't either got the mental capacity to deal with this now or there's nothing I can do about it. So, you know what, I'm just going to put a lid on that one and put it over there and deal with what I've got to deal with today. I think I'm probably one of those people that very much lives in the moment. And, and I, I, you know, I, I'd like to think that I, every day is an exciting adventure and I don't really want to sit there and dwell upon yesterday too much. And maybe it's a bad thing too, but I don't necessarily sit there and dwell upon next week too much because I'm just so busy today. So I, I, I probably live in the moment a little bit. I don't know if that answers your question at all. It does. It absolutely does. And it's interesting to me. So is this a conscious thing, the fact that you enjoy being in the moment, particularly in media, in journalism, but in the media career that you've had, you know, so much of it can be about either what happened yesterday, you know, here were the ratings, here's what went wrong, let's go over this thing, etc. or very much mm. here's the next stage of your career. This is the thing that you're going to do, living very much in the past or the future. Have you always been a person who's been very good at being centred in that moment or is that something, a skill that you've developed over the years? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I probably haven't thought about it, but it comes back to control the controllable for me. So I can't control the ratings. I can't control how many people are going to sit down and watch a show that night. I can't control the budgets that a network might have. There's a lot of things I can't, but the things that I can control is if I'm doing a story, damn well do the best job I can. Treat the talent well and with respect, be balanced, do my job as best as I can and focus on what I'm doing and what I can control and the other stuff is up to someone else to worry about. Um, maybe that's the way that I can deal with it. So I think when I'm, whether I'm covering something that's happening in the news or I'm telling a story, I do think I'm very much 100% in that zone at that time. I'm probably not very good at then um, worrying about other things that are going on around me, which is 
not always healthy. It might be, you know, suddenly five minutes before mealtime and I haven't even thought about dinner because I've just been so in the zone all day. Um, but when I'm on a story, yeah, definitely I feel like I'm 100% there and that's my job to do it. So if I worry about my job, everyone else can worry about theirs. Okay, so there's something a little counterintuitive about your latest project then. So if you're a person who yeah. lives in the moment, you know, your latest project, Age Against the Machine, is very much about thinking about the future, you know, how we are going to age, how we are aging, what it's going to look like for, you know, older people in our society, what it currently looks like, what it'll look like when we're that age and how we're preparing for that. So why why is someone who lives in the moment, who is very much about the now, also currently doing a project that is about, you know, us getting older? What was it that was appealing about this project? You know, why why was it something you were passionate about? It's storytelling. And I think one of the things that struck me was women talk about invisibility a lot as they get older. And it was one of these words that I felt kept coming up in so many different ways and different forms. And as a journalist, I was interested to find out why. Why do people feel this way? Why do women in particular reach a certain age and feel that they've purpose is different, that they've got challenges that they may not have faced when they were younger. So the journalist in me was intrigued by that concept and where do we go? It probably was um, a little more highlighted because it coincided with me turning 50 last year and just that changing. You know, it's funny, you have milestone birthdays and everyone else makes you contemplate it more than you probably do. It's, oh, how do you feel about turning 50? And my answer was like, well, no different than I felt at 49. There's just going to be an extra candle on the cake. And, and it was that conversation, I guess, that other people were putting so many questions like, how is life going to be different for you? And what is it going to look like? And how is it going to feel like? And so that probably just intrigued me that why do we do these to ourselves? Are there particular milestones along the way that we start to rethink who we are? Or is it not necessarily how we feel about ourselves? Is it how other people perceive us, feel about us, look at us, look, you know, think all those things. So I think it was prompted by primarily by being a journalist and just being intrigued by the issue but it also felt quite personal. Yeah, I, I'm interested in what you say there, the fact that it's defined by other people. There is a brilliant uh, Australian comedian called Beck Hill, and uh, she once said uh, that you know, everyone always asks female comedians, what's it like to be a female comedian? And her answer <laughs> is always very much, it is just like being a male comedian, but you get asked that more often. <laughs> and that's pretty yes. much, you know, that's right. Yeah. And it is about... It's not about that there is a problem with being a female comedian as much as there's a problem that you get asked constantly about yeah. being a female comedian. I imagine being a woman in the media, mm -hmm. there is so much narrative about the aging of women, particularly yes. in the media, particularly in journalism, particularly in television, that I imagine, like the question must get asked so often. Yeah. You probably think about it only when you're asked the question. Absolutely. Like you get asked yeah. the question so often. Yes, absolutely. And you know, funnily, funnily enough, the, the main times that it would come up was when I would be doing an interview with a women's magazine, which I used to think was fairly ironic, but it, it never bothered me. I mean, I was, I can do my job probably better than I could 20 years ago. So what? There's a few wrinkles around my eyes. I look at it that I've been laughing and smiling for 50 years, you know, 
great. Um, but there is that perception of other people, you know, everything from the from the visual and, and how do you, you know, do you feel pressure to look a certain way as you get older? Well, I think, well, I don't feel any different than the pressure I put on myself to look half decent when I walk out the door. That's just a sign of self-respect. It's got nothing to do with my job. Um, but yeah, it's definitely the perceptions that other people put on you. You realize that, that sometimes people want you to be where maybe where you were before what you used to be doing when you do a change or you do something different. Not everybody is happy about that. So they ask you about it, but yeah, it's so true. I feel like we do get asked particular questions um, as a, as a woman that maybe, well, I don't know, maybe blokes do get asked. I just don't know. Cause I'm not a bloke. So <laughs> do you get asked about it a lot? I mean, I, here's what I always say is that I know from the small amount I'm on television, the amount of unsolicited feedback I get about <laughs> every aspect of that performance, whether it be the content or whether it be the look of it, the style yeah. of my hair that week, the amount of product I have in it, whatever. And if that's coming to me on 10 episodes a year on the ABC, I can only extrapolate to the sort of feedback that comes in commercial television around those, you know, big flag, you know, ship programs where people really do, you know, I imagine just give constant feedback and I mean when I say people I mean everyone from viewers to executives so like it would be disingenuous to suggest that the way that people look and present themselves on television is not part of the equation and so when you go into a project like this and you are looking at aging are you very conscious about reframing even the way you ask the questions so that you're not you know falling into that trap of asking the same sort of boring questions about aging and getting older that you've been asked yourself possibly but I think with this project a lot of the questions came from me wanting to know certain things because I was going through it you know how how I felt or why do other people look at women differently when they get older? Because now I'm a woman starting to get older and I'm thinking, well, I don't, I don't feel any different than I did 25 years ago. So, so why do other people think that we do or why do they look at us differently or, or in a workplace, I was fascinated to learn that, for example, if a, if a, you know, a major company is restructuring, it's the women over 50. That's the first age group, age, age group that they start cutting back. Why is that? Like, why would a company do that? I look at it that, you know, your kids are growing up and probably off your hands a little more. Um, You've got time. You've got more skills than you had when you first started out. You've got enjoyment. You've got all of those factors. I would have thought they'd probably be the most valuable employees that you could have. So some of those questions came from, yeah, a really personal place, out of just pure curiosity, looking around at my my girlfriends and the things that they were going through, and and why do they feel that way, and why do other feel others feel that way about them? So let's talk about work for a start, because I couldn't agree with you more when it comes to what you've just said. And uh, so, why is it like? What did you find out? What were the themes that started to, you know, develop when you started asking that question? Why are you getting rid of these people who are actually probably in the perfect time in their life to dedicate themselves to you and your business? A lot of it came down to different industries. We talked to Kate Jenkins quite a lot about this, and she said that they're now seeing that older men sometimes are going are beginning to go through this. But whether it is because as a society we value youth, 
for so many reasons. We we value it because of, of aesthetics. I think for a woman, um, you know, your your valuable years, you know, and I do that in inverted commas, uh, you know, your breeding years and your role as a mother and all of those things whether people think that as as you get older you're not on top of technology and you're not able to adapt and learn new things in the way that you could when you were young which I think is crazy. I think if anything, I'm, you know, I'm more open to learning new things. You're not as, I don't think stuck in your ways because you realize how big the world is a lot wider and larger than you might've perceived it when you were young. Um, but it's also about how we feel about ourselves too. And your sense of, of purpose, your self worth. One of the things that we thought was really fascinating as we spoke to a lot of women was when they could use their voice as they get older, it gave them a purpose, whether it be through things like leadership roles, unofficial or official, things like mentoring, passing on wisdom. And so I think in the workplace, that is just as valid. We can learn from the young 20-somethings who are hungry and green and, and eager and have a different mindset. But by the same token, I still want to learn from the 60-plus-year-olds in the office who've probably seen it all before and hopefully learnt from the era of their or their company's ways and how we can do things differently. So it, it, I think we probably need to both both sides need to share a little more. When we talk about, I mean, there's been massive, hopefully, I think. I mean, it's very hard for me to fully comprehend this as somebody who's not, you know, quite in the target demographic of, you know, having been through those experiences yet. But from an external observation, it feels like <clears throat> things are hopefully getting better. You know, yeah. that society is changing, that there is rapid advancement. Like you even talk about the confidence of that younger generation of women coming into the workforce and what they, you know, expect for themselves and you know what they're not going to you know fall into the same hopefully structures that previous generations have had to but when you have these conversations were you also very aware of talking to other women who are disenfranchised from the system whether they be you know people of color people from different yep. minorities have also not only have this you know have to deal with the idea of getting older as a woman in this society but also the extra baggage that comes with extra disenfranchisement from the system yeah, absolutely. We found everything from from race to privilege to education to money. All of those factors played such a role in how a woman would age both within her own mind and also externally. So very much so um, spoke to a number of women, for example, in the public eye and the different paths that they have followed you talk about race you know that I guess as a, a you know Anglo white blonde you know kind of ticking all those mainstream boxes I'm in a very different place from a woman who has dark skin who who may um, have a, a religion that isn't necessarily the majority so definitely those factors came into play as to how how they felt about themselves as they got older, how much they might have fought and how what a battle it was to get to that position because I'm also very mindful that, you know, I've, I've had a, a good education and I'm married and I've, 
got some money saved up and I'm in a very different place than women. For example, we spoke to a few that are homeless. Um, women over 50 is the fastest growing group of homeless in this country, which I just found staggering. And, you know, you've, you've got women that may have taken years off work to either care for children or to care for a spouse or to care for elderly parents who don't have the superannuation that maybe a man would and suddenly finding themselves in these dire situations and they never thought they'd be there. And they may have ticked all the boxes that I can tick, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but then something shifts, something changes and how easily they've slipped into that place. So yes, I'm very, very mindful that I'm looking at it through a very privileged lens and not everybody is able to, which is why then I think it's really important to have the conversation and those of us that are able to and are ticking all those boxes that has meant that, you know, potentially we may have had an easier ride, then let's let's agitate for change on behalf of all of those that don't have the same voice and the same pathways to expressing these who may find themselves in a place where they never imagined. It's up to the rest of us to, to make sure we look out for them all. Okay, so homeless women over the age of 50 is like as you said an incredibly growing and for all the reasons that you've said you know obviously i think people can also in a way intellectually understand it but what do we do about it how do we put yes. things in place that means that women aren't put in these positions and aren't fi suddenly finding themselves you know out of mm. homes on the streets living in these conditions i think ensuring that women have a superannuation during their working life and if we have to find a way to balance it out so that when she is in a position to retire that she is not left high and dry you know you may have a, a situation where a relationship breaks down and the, the male in the relationship might have been earning more it may have had may have continually worked from when you've left school and a woman in that situation may not have so that is a really big factor um, and a part of it and I think being aware of that and looking at ways the other thing that I found really interesting is one of the women that we spoke to still had a job so was employed but was not in a position where she could pay a bond and, and get herself a home. So therefore she couldn't access the services that we would normally see somebody going to or recommend because she had money coming in, but she didn't have enough to actually go and find herself an apartment. So she was sleeping in her car and she would pull up next to the public toilet blocks at the beach and every morning when they'd been cleaned, go in and she would clean herself and, and you'd get ready for work and go to work and nobody knew and leave at the end of the day and hop into a car and drive around the block and sleep in it. And I think that was just frightening to think that there are women that are doing that, that have done all the things right throughout their life and worked hard and raised their families and cared for others and done all of the things that they're meant to do. And then through a, a twist in a moment, whether it was something that she's done, whether it's a, as I said earlier, a relationship breakdown, whatever it might be, finds herself in a situation where she's sleeping in a car and can't access help because she's still earning money. I just think that's really sad. Um, but it's, this is a blunt question and perhaps, you know, it's the, I mean, it's the morning after I've just spent two weeks at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, Mel. So I uh, excuse my voice a little bit this morning and also <laughs> perhaps I'm a little bit okay. more blunt than I ordinarily would be, but, uh, mm -hmm. Do men not give enough of a shit about this? 
this is part of i i worry that part of the problem even with this project that you have just done is that it will be listened to by women the majority of the time and they will all understand what they're talking about and they will nod along or they might learn something a little bit more than what they already knew but they'll you know they'll be like yes i recognize this i understand this and the people who really need to listen to it for it to have some decent chance at having long-lasting societal change are the men who are not who are going to continue to ignore it is am i being too harsh when i say that oh it's it's such a good point i yeah, how do I get the blokes to listen to it? You make a really, really good point. I think, look, I don't want, I don't want to say that, you know, blokes don't care and, and be too general about it because there are a lot of men that do. And I would of never course. want this to be a project that's about, it's not about man bashing at all. It is about looking at the issues that women over 50 are facing in their life. And some of those involve relationships and some of those involve relationships with men. But the point you make, I think, is is interesting. I've got two children, a 20-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter. And whenever we talk about women's voices and campaigning and the women's movement, it's funny because I've always thought my daughter will grow up knowing she can do anything. She can take on the world. She is empowered just by the very nature that she's this awesome young girl that hopefully won't give anything standing in her way a second thought. It's my son that I've always thought I need to empower. I I say to him that should you be in a position one day where you are determining wages of those that you employ or you have a group in front of you and you have the power to make sure that they are treated equally and with respect, then mate, it's on your shoulders. And, and I want him to think about that really, really carefully. One of the interesting things when we were talking to Kate Jenkins about this was that um, you might have heard the stat that I think it's men, men will apply for a job with 60% of the skills. Women will apply for a job with 100%. She said to me the thing that she thought was interesting is mainly that men will quote that stat back to her. So she says to them, if you're a leader, then don't wait for someone to put their hand up because the bloke is going to be the one that's going to put his hand up. Look at the people in front of you that you've employed and go and tap them on the shoulder and men and women, but say to them, I invite you to apply for this job because sometimes, you know, maybe it is a generalization, but women, you know, we have that imposter syndrome. We doubt ourselves. I know for me, that's been one of the things that over the years, you know, constantly going, oh my gosh, am I good enough? Can I do this? Am I okay about it? Sometimes you need somebody else to say to you, go for it. You can do it. And I think if that voice can come from a male, it's even more powerful because we know that women rally around one another and come on sisterhood, you girls are awesome. We're here to support you. I think to have a man in a situation say to another woman, you can do this, you've got this, I'll back you, is incredibly powerful. So, yeah, you made a really good point. I need to talk to the blokes. I don't know how, but... <laughs> well, hopefully. I mean, there's some blokes who listen to this too, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm hoping. This is the point I'm trying to make, though, is that yeah. I think it's more... It's just not about having these you know, women being on board with all these issues. If men are the ones who have the power in the society, you know, in the structures of society, and they are built around, if men have them, then the structures of those society are built around the way men, you know, interact with each other. We reward things that we find positive in men. We have to have a thinking change ourselves to say, how do we make this more inclusive? How do we change things? Like you said, how do you not wait for somebody to apply for the job? How do you reach out Mm -hmm. to 
make sure the first person gets the job. I think it's about those who have the power being willing to give up some of that power, to share some of that power, as well as those who don't have it, having an opportunity to sort of apply for it. That's all. Yeah. And, and we looked at a few different cultures. We looked at... Um, you know, queen mothers in Africa who are in a situation where it's sort of they're almost like, a, I guess, a mayor of their village and so may not necessarily have the ultimate power but are in a place where their voice and their influence has a significant effect on their community. We spoke to First Nations women where the matriarch is respected and the difference that that makes within their culture. So I think it doesn't always equate to prime minister, president, CEO. There are ways that women can lead, can influence, can have that impact, just not necessarily the title. So I think it would be good to see more women in those roles with the title because the old, you know, you can't be what you can't see is so very true. But I think a lot of women understand that they have more than an influence than maybe um, is recognised in a public forum, if, if you understand. So doing that, but we've got to make sure that, you know, we talk a lot about women on boards, for example. Well, I think that's all well and good, but you never see a board. I want to see a CEO. I want my daughter to grow up seeing female politicians and CEOs and coaches and, you know, visible positions. And also I want her to see those women being respected by those around them, men and women. Okay. Obviously the first, the best kind of journalism is the sort of journalism that when you go into it, you have a bit of an idea of what you hope you might find, but then something happens along the way that you go, Oh, fuck me. I did not know yeah. that. Or fuck me. I never thought that that was going to be something I discovered in this process. What was your biggest fuck me moment from uh, age against the machine? How many women feel that their self-worth and their value has gone when they reach a certain age? That broke my heart, I think. And, and we try to talk about how do you find it? How do you hang on to it? What are the things that you need to do to make yourself still feel valued and valuable and all of those things. So um, I probably can't change everyone else's thinking around it, but if I can talk to a woman about what the things that she can do, and, and they are things like remembering your self-worth, remembering who you are, using your voice. We speak to this incredible woman. She's in her 80s and she was a civil rights campaigner back when she was a young woman. And she says that, that you know, campaigning, agitating for change is something that you can still do no matter how old you are. And that gives you such a sense of purpose and it makes you know that you have a role to play still in society. So things like that, how do we, we speak to Rachel Griffiths about, you know, taking on her first directing role um, when she was 50 and, and the bravery that she felt she needed for that. And how do you ensure that all in our little individual worlds, we still feel that we can contribute? And I think that's probably the main thing that came out for me. I was really saddened to know that so many women felt the way they did. Was there a common core to that? Was it when they got past, like, you know, as you said, the childbearing age or was it about physicality, how they appeared attractive in society's eyes? Like what was what was the core of this disenfranchisement that women were feeling? 
I think, it, look, I don't think there was necessarily one because for a lot of women who had had children, sometimes it's when your kids leave home and everything readjusts itself and they were in a, you know, I've just had our eldest son has left home and um, that was a big deal for us as a family. And, you know, you, you as a mum, your children need you for so long and then suddenly they don't. And that's what's meant to happen but it's still a little bit of a sad moment. So it's, you know, for women that have had children, it was that. For a lot of women, uh, it was a change in employment. They were let go. They no longer felt that they had their worth through their work. For a lot of women, it was also the visual that they may have been young and beautiful and that people didn't look at them the same way. And that was a hard thing for them to deal with and to bear. So, you know, we, we probably all come from a different place, but essentially it all comes down to that core of your self-worth, your self-esteem, um, your purpose, your sense of purpose. What were the conversations around physical beauty like for this podcast? Obviously, we're living in a society now where, you know, uh, plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery or just cosmetic procedures have become very commonplace and obviously you know at least some of that is, is a, as a response to you know people being worried about aging there was an article i read on the weekend of, about uh, justine bateman who i'm sure you might yes. remember justine bateman and she yeah. was just you know it was a story about the fact that she herself had refused to sort of get you know fillers and you know the mm. sort of things you'd usually get as a hollywood actor and she that she wasn't going to apologize for the fact that her face looked like you know, a woman of her age and how her face yeah. should look. That said, I'm not also here to shame anybody who wants to do something to their own no. body, their own choice also. So how did you go into that delicate area where, you know, obviously part of that is society's pressure of how you look, but also people have a right to self-determine how they look as well. It's a, yeah. a difficult area. How did you explore it? Yeah touched on it in a couple of ways. One was with a, a psychologist who specialises in body image and we asked her why people do it and why people get, some people get surgery and some don't. She said that often the, the, the need for it is driven by trying to, you know, regain some of that youth or the factors, the things that you feel that you might've lost as you've got older. We spoke to um, a couple of women in South Korea, which is essentially known as the plastic surgery capital of the world. And their attitude to it is really fascinating that they have no issue with it. There's almost a, a bit of a universal aesthetic that people want to look a certain way and you go along in your lunchtime and you get whatever you need to get done. Um, families are giving, uh, surgeries as graduation presents to their daughters and so it is really commonplace we, the doctor we spoke to said that she's finding more and more women coming in getting work and they leave and they don't worry about wearing sunglasses and hats and covering it all up they're proud to walk down the street because it's almost a sign of wealth and hey good on you that you've done it so a really different attitude and then not that it's plastic surgery at all but we we then we spoke to some um maori elders and and their they talk about their heritage and how important it is and they wear it on their face. And there's a younger woman we've spoken to who's got the moco, which is the, the inking on her chin. And it's not called a tattoo, but essentially, you know, just so people, listeners can understand that's what it is on the, on the chin. And these, these um, Maori elders who 
wear it with such pride and their face shows their life, where they've been, what they've done. And if it's weathered, it means you've been around and you, you know, you stood on the top of the mountain in the in the wild winds that have that have come off. And 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 it's sort of how valuable that is to their sense of self-worth. So it's such a personal thing. Same. We don't pass judgment at all and everybody has different motivations everybody has probably different um i guess different lines in the sand of what is work and what isn't um you know i go to the hairdresser and want to get rid of the arctic blondes as my hairdresser calls them coming through (laughs) you know that makes me feel slightly better i'm like i don't really think i'm mentally ready to have gray hairs just yet but then why aren't i and there's other women that do and they look beautiful so it's not I think it's really important that it's not about how others see you, it's how you see yourself. And if that's how you want to be and how you want to look and what you want to do to yourself, then, hey, do it or don't do it. Yeah, but on a broader level, we still probably need to have that conversation around how much of how we see ourselves is defined by how others see us. You know, in the way that when my hair's gone grey and people keep telling me I look distinguished and, you know, like, you know, like. Yeah, you're a silver fox. Right, as a man, that's what people start to say. Whereas as a woman in our society, we still don't have. There's no female equivalent yet of the silver fox and so like when we say you know that it's you saying i i want to do this we still have to have that conversation around how much of that is shaped by general attitudes we have in society right and it's like the first thing that people comment on particularly as you've said when you're on television it's it's the first thing that you see and sometimes it's probably just all anyone can think of saying about you they'll pass judgment on your hair or what you're wearing or your face so in a way, I used to think, well, if that's all you can comment on, then, hey, big deal. Um, you know, if you were writing, someone's writing in saying that was a really shit interview and you're a hopeless journalist, then I would be really upset. But if you're writing in saying, gee, you know, Doyle, you're looking a little old there or a little tired or don't like your haircut, then, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. We've all got different senses of style and that's okay. I wear my hair like this because I kind of like it and... If you don't, that's all right. Uh, how do you um, deal with feedback? Have you always been a person who's been reasonably... I mean, the way that you just talk about it there seems very calm, very rational, very centred, very sensible. But were you always like that? Oh, I can no. imagine as a young journalist, you know, being on TV, being thrust into the world of complete strangers having opinions about you that, yeah. you know, it might have well, been Well, back different. then they were letters, so... <laughs> <laughs> that was okay. I didn't have to read them. Um, yeah, yeah oh, look, it hurts. It hurts. It's no different. I mean, just because you're on television doesn't mean you're any more or less sensitive than anyone else. As if you're going to walk up to someone in the supermarket and say, oh, gee, you're looking a bit haggard there, love. You know, like seriously. So why? Because we're on TV. Can somebody say it? And it's not going to, you know, infiltrate and pierce my heart any more or any less. Um, sometimes I just put my head in the sand. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to read it it hurts so I'm best not to go there never read the comments has always been my mantra you know if there's an article posted or daily mail or someone writes something um never read the comments because it just doesn't help your mental health so I just figure I, I, you know I can't I can't do anything about what those people think back to control my controllable hey I, I can't I can't change their opinions so I'll just focus on what I'm doing and if you don't like it then there's lots of you know watch someone else 
Uh, you've got two kids who've grown up completely in the social media age, though. I mean, their yeah. entire life, their entire development. You're of my era, which means that, <laughs> you know, basically we spent our childhood, you know, the age your kids were, that's about when the internet started to be a thing. But it was still a few more years. We were both probably in our sort of like mid-20s-ish when like the internet became a you know, a world wide web in the way that we know that it is now and changed everything forever. How have you negotiated, you know, your kids growing up in a world that is so substantially different to the world you grew up in? I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful all those really embarrassing photos are not, on, you know, not available on, on someone's phone and the perms and the outfits and all those things. Um, I think I've tried to show my children that there's a difference between what's real and what isn't. And particularly my daughter, that whenever I've done photo shoots, for example, over the years, and she'll see a glossy image on a magazine, that I think it's important she sees the untouched images. And that when you look at Instagram, people use lights and filters and all sorts of things. And they've probably done 480 versions of that one shot just to get the right angle. Um, there's an amazing woman on Instagram, um, Dana Mercer, who was an editor for Women's Health Magazine in the US. And she does things like she'll do two versions of a of a pose so she'll get have a an image of herself for example in a swimsuit and she'll do the this is how an instagram influencer poses and you know holds everything in and stands in such a way that you know she looks how we think is meant to be what women look like and then she'll stand normally and you see the difference and i think it's really important that we keep reminding not just young people but also those of our age that it isn't none of that is real. I remember doing a photo with um, my daughter when she was a tiny baby and we got the images back, got the magazine and she'd been retouched. And I was like, oh my God, she's, you know, six months old. So if, if a six month old skin isn't perfect enough to leave on its own, then there's no hope for the rest of us. So yeah, we want, I mean, we've got to remember too, you want to open up a glossy magazine and you want pictures to be pretty. You want models to look a certain way when they're walking down a catwalk and they're showing off clothes. I get all of that totally, but just, you know, I, I always have said to my kids, just, you just got to balance it. Not everyone looks like that. We're all like, I figure it we're like horses. Some of us are thoroughbreds, some are racehorses, some are Shetland ponies, some are Clydesdales, you know, we're still all horses, but we're just, all built differently so that's okay uh, life is hard and it, life is hard for everybody in different ways and particularly in the last year l life has been incredibly hard we weren't all in it together but we were all in it at the same time and experiencing it in, in very different ways what is it that you find hard about life tell give people you know take us behind the you know the instagram version of your life where people mm -hmm. look at you know melissa doyle and they see this incredibly you know successful composed beautiful person like what do you find hard about life um sometimes just the simple day-to-day -day logistics you know you, you're tired and you get up and you kind of got to go through it all again and there's no food in my fridge and I've the milk is four days out of date and I'm like I've got to cook a meal again tonight and I really I've got to hang out another load of washing and I've got to unpack the dishwasher now I know that sounds very first world so please don't misinterpret that but I think it's just the the machinations of every day sometimes you go oh can't I just run away and go somewhere exciting and do something different and you know be anonymous and 
drift off into the blue ocean or something. I don't know that. Um, and also probably I think all of us, you know, caring for others, relationships, seeing parents get older and wishing that you could make it okay and people that you love when they're unwell or they're going through something. We've all had friends that struggled to different degrees in the last year. So I think they're the moments that um, that get you where you just think, I wish I could, wish we could all be okay. And I know we can't, but up and down. So you just want to help just want to look after those that you love I think how do you feel about the last year that we've just been through I know it's a it's a small question about a big topic but do yeah. you feel for me it feels like the it, this was our world war this was our version of a generational event that I don't think that I had experienced in my lifetime you know things yeah. like 9-11 and those sort of things I guess came close but you know previous generations did have those defining things great depressions industrial revolutions I guess there's an argument that the invention of the internet and the way that's changed the world is partly the big one we've been through but this pandemic is the other one do you think that it will fundamentally change the way the world works the way we are as human beings I have no doubt I don't think you can go through anything so major and not I think two things one was probably the reset that we often talk about you know we all slowed down because we had to and and the thought of going back to some of that frantic pace is that for everyone do we want to but I, I say to my children that I hope the thing that they take from it is as they grow up, they know that you have to adapt sometimes. Things can change. We all can merrily go along our way and think this is perfect and it's going to be like this forever and ever. And then it does come to a screeching halt. So be prepared, you know, have a plan B and, and know that you can um, – I hate the word pivot. I felt like we vlogged it, but I guess in a way it is, you know, what you have to do. But but you need to know that you can change direction and you will survive. You will be okay if everything that you thought was going to be a certain way is no longer. We will be okay. And also just the, the simple boring logistics of, you know what, just make sure you have some savings in the bank. Just always have a little backup. So a backup how you think and what you're going to do and, a, you know, a few dollars stashed away um, under the pillow or whatever that should you need them. Should, should the world change as we know it, you've got something just to help you take a little bit of that stress and pressure off because I think we saw a lot of people that were really stressed who'd never been through anything like that and we hear you know all of us have probably heard stories from grandparents going through the war and I remember my grandmother even you know would rinse the plastic bags that she brought the apples home in and as a kid I just didn't have an understanding of why she would do that and as I got older I did and I hope that our children are growing up and this is what has has made them have an understanding of of what other people have been through and yeah, just be prepared for anything because anything can happen. I think speaking to your children about it is interesting to me because they, are, I, in some ways, I almost feel the worst for kids around the age of your kids in yeah. that they are coming into or were in such a huge moment in your life, particularly end of school kids, you know, mm. kids who were going through year 11, year 12, kids who missed out on things like graduations and the sort of yeah. big parties they might have had to celebrate end of year events and, you know, first year university, big O week events and all that sort yeah. of, it's really part of the meat of people's lives and it had to go away. How did you talk to your kids about what we were going through and what their responsibilities were and what it meant for their lives? 
Yeah. We had a few of um, my son's mates had gone overseas to do their gap year and all had to come rushing home. They're the ones, I'm with you, I feel sad because they won't get that back. You know, as an adult, I look at it, okay, I've had two years where things have just slowed down. We're fine, you know, in the great scheme of things, if I live till I'm 100, two years is really not much, I'm okay. But when you're a, a child of that age and there are things that you cannot get back, yeah, I agree. That's really tough. Look, my two were fairly lucky that my son finished school in 2019. So he just squeezed through and my daughter is doing year 12 this year. So um, for her, year 11 was impacted and it wasn't um, it wasn't too bad. She managed. Our son's actually gone away to college. So that was delayed a little. Um, ben, it was pretty hard, you know, sending him off in the middle of all of this. But as long as you're safe, life has to go on. We have to keep moving. We had a, all of us had a bit of a shutdown and then you had to get to a point where we had to then find a way forward and, and, you know, do it, do it safely. So I feel that if, if they can just be a little bit more, here's that word again, resilient, that other one, but, um, but that is what we've probably all come from learning. Haven't we, all of us as grownups as well. And, um, and, and, and also being mindful of one another. I think we saw a lot of people that were very isolated. And I think that was probably a really good thing for everybody to remember those around them. So if it meant that you, you know, started a relationship with the old bloke up the road who lives on his own and your kids can go up and say hi every now and then. And I hope we hang on to those things because they were really, really important. And I know it sounds very cliche and naff and all that kind of stuff, but I think it's so true. I remember um, at the very beginning seeing all the kids out in the street doing hopscotch in the driveway and walking the dogs and, you know, all those lovely things. So I hope we hang on to a few of those little things. Uh, you talked about the idea that if you live to 100, this is only a little pause in the middle. Do you? Would you like to live to 100? Oh, my gosh, I hope so. Yeah, I've got so much to do. I always worry I'm going to run out of time. I'm not very good at sitting still and doing nothing. So if I have nothing to do, I'll find something. I just can't help myself. So I, um, I look at, you know, I've got a giant world map pinned to the wall and um, I look at all the places I want to explore and the people I want to meet and the foods I want to try and the countries I want to go to and the things I want to experience. I sometimes think, oh my gosh, it's, you know, I, I just don't want to be, I don't want to just scratch a tiny little part of the surface when there's so much to do. So yeah, I don't want to run out of time. Uh, well, speaking of running out of time, we're almost running out of time for today, but I have some standard questions that I always ask on this podcast. So I'll try to get through as many of those as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, I think our spirit comes back somewhere, somehow, only because when I lost people I love, maybe we want to think that, but when I lost my grandmother, I just still think she's with me. So she's hanging around. She's keeping an eye on me. So maybe I'll do that for someone else. What's the best bit of advice that you've ever got? Oh, definitely the control, the controllable. What's the worst piece of advice that you've ever got? Oh, my gosh. Um... Um, I don't know. I probably just ignored it. Right. <laughs> well, that's good. That's very healthy. I'm glad, to, I'm glad to hear that you're that sort of person. Uh, okay. I have a little, uh, it's as close as I get to an inspirational slogan. It's on my desk. It's a little piece of like uh, metal and it's got inscribed in it. What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And what that means to me basically is just to not think about the success or otherwise of projects to go into things, you know, as if they are guaranteed to be successful 
successful. So I'm going to ask you that question. What would you mm. attempt if you were guaranteed of success? Everything. Like everything. I just think give it a go. I, I really believe that sometimes you have to throw your arms open to the universe and just try it. Go there. Eat that thing. Sing that song. Take on that job. Join that team. I don't know. Just, just. That's uh, probably not answering your question at all, is it? Sorry, but just everything. Don't, don't. There's always a, there's always a million reasons why not to do something or not to do it today or no, I can't because there's no way I could do that or whatever. Just, just try it. I remember, you know, when we're young, it's always the old. Well, you know, what's the worst thing? That, what's the worst thing that can happen? Um, I don't want to get older and and not think that way anymore. So, I'll still try it you know i might fall flat on my face and get totally embarrassed or you know totally totally mess it up but that's also kind of part of it that gives you something to laugh about and gives the kids something to laugh about as well so just everything just keep trying everything what are you no good at that you wish you were really good at oh i wish i could sing yeah does everyone say that yeah a lot, i mean a lot of people singing yeah, and I'm flying flat as the tend table. to be the two main answers yeah i've got no rhythm yeah can't <laughs> sing can't dance i'm a pretty much I will admit to being a bit of a Gumby sport wise. I go to the gym, but I'm pretty useless and I'm a bit of a klutz. I fall over quite a lot. Um, so there are certain things that I just cannot take on, you know, when they, you know, they're like, come on, do a box jump. And I'm like, seriously, I'm going to fall flat on my face and break my nose. So no, I'd like it if I was a little more coordinated, that would be handy and less painful. <laughs> uh, Melissa Doyle's new show, uh, Age Against the Machine, uh, will be available when people are hearing this. So I highly recommend that uh, people check it out. I think it's going to be, and particularly blokes, not just women listening to this, <laughs> but particularly blokes as well. You have a listen as well. That's what I really want to recommend. Uh, I have one final question. Uh, yes. I have a time machine, Melissa, and uh, I can take you to the future. I can take you to the past. You can go to a moment in your own life, change or observe it. Uh, you can just visit something completely random to your own life. You don't have to go and see your own life at all it does not matter um, all it is is a round trip on a time machine where would you go do you think into space mm. you just like to explore what's yeah. out there yeah i'll go into the future i won't mm. go back in the past because there's really no point i figure everything good bad and ugly got you to the point you're at now so you may as well just own it um yeah i want to go into the future so that i can go into a really cool spaceship and i want to see the earth from space <laughs> Well, that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for doing this this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Oh, I've loved chatting to you. Thanks, Will. 